our very first Wednesday night that we were back together, I left here and drove back to the Columbus airport. That's where I was going to drop off my rental car. And as I was transferring all of the things that I had from the previous week's travel from the rental car to my car, the wind was whipping around and blowing. And as I was moving some paperwork out, a receipt that I had from a restaurant slipped away. It got caught in the wind, and I thought, I need that receipt, and so I began chasing it, but the wind was faster than I was, and so the receipt floated along. I saw it going. It's probably somewhere in Tuscaloosa by now. It started making its way along, and I just could not get it, and I thought about how the wind was carrying that receipt along, and it was completely out of my control. In his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus said the Holy Spirit is like that. He moves like the wind. He he. he stirs and moves and no one really can see where he's coming from where he's going when he's going to begin and so that metaphor of the Holy Spirit as wind is one that takes its shape all the way through scripture when you get to the Bible and how it was inspired by the Holy Spirit that metaphor of the wind comes back into a specific passage that I want us to study get together today if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open them to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, we're going to read together verses 20 and 21. As you're turning there, let me remind you that you have about one week remaining to vote for our pastor search committee. At the conclusion of the 11 o'clock service next Sunday, we're going to take those ballots and we're going to store them over. We already have them in the office in a nuclear, you know, uh, protected a holding cell there and so if you have your ballots already turned in we have them there secure but if you haven't yet decided these are the people that we believe God has led us to to choose to serve on the pastor search committee at the conclusion of the 11 o'clock service next week then the voting will be done so be sure to get your ballots in second isn't it good all to be together today I know that some of you, it, I, I'm not exaggerating, some of you may not have seen some of our other church members since last March. You may have been coming to different services, and so you may have been in an 8.30 service, or you may have been in the 11 o'clock service, and you haven't seen people from the others. And so I'm glad, even though the circumstances are, are cold and, and a kind of emergency situation, I'm glad that we're together today. And I want you to know that on Easter Sunday morning, we're planning on having one outside service so that we all can be together on that day. So you can begin making plans for Easter Sunday. We'll all be together that day in an outside service. I I also want to mention that this weekend Corbin and Reagan are celebrating five years of serving here at our church uh, Corbin Jenkins is our student minister here Reagan is the bass player and band leader here back behind us I'm not I'm joking about that she may be I don't know is she is she even back there oh she's over here they've ostracized her today and so they are celebrating five years with us and so I know that you'll want to um, just let them know of your appreciation for their service here during their uh, tenure here at First Baptist Union. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter wrote about the Bible, and in verse 20, he said, Above all, you know this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. 
Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter said, listen, this book that we have, it's no ordinary book. It's unique among all of the other books that ever have been written because this book was authored by God. No prophet ever said, we really need to, to write down some religious teaching so that people will know how to live. The origin of this book is God. God is the one who impressed upon Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses, Samuel, Ezra. God is the one who impressed upon these people. I want you to write down these words. But it isn't just that God's words or that the Bible's origin is from God. Also, it's execution. The, the process of its being written was guided by God. And Peter used this metaphor here of carried along by the Holy Spirit. In the same way that objects are carried along in the wind, as, as the biblical writers were tuning in with the Holy Spirit and were writing down what he inspired them to say, he guided them to make sure that what we have isn't an ordinary book. And so that um, metaphor of carried along by the Holy Spirit is what I want us to explore today. What does, what does the Bible mean when it, when it says that men who wrote this word were carried along by the Spirit? Well, first, it means that we know that this book is true. Since the Holy Spirit was the one guiding and carrying along the people who wrote these words down, we can count on the fact that it is absolutely true in every single area that the Bible intends to communicate and teach. It is true. It is without any mistake, any error. And the reason that we have that confidence is because we don't hope that the men who were writing it were men of character or that they didn't forget anything. We count on the fact that the Holy Spirit guided them he carried them along now let me use this as an example suppose that you decide that you are going to escape the white death coming and you decide that you are going to drive south maybe you're going to go down to um, Florida or somewhere like that and so you load up in your car and you're headed down south and as you pull to an intersection you ask a young man standing on the corner hey uh, we're looking for such and such place. Can you get us there? And suppose this teenage boy who's standing on the corner looks at you and he sees the license plate from Mississippi and he says, oh, they're from Union. They're some of those uppity people. And so he begins steering you down a wrong pathway. He gives you some wrong directions. And so as you are driving along, you end up far away from where you intended to be. You, he gave you directions, but as you were driving along, they were the wrong directions, and so you ended up in the wrong place. Now imagine the same scenario. Suppose that you drive south to get away from the, the cold weather and the, the ice that's coming in. You get to that very same intersection and a teenage boy standing there, you ask him for directions and suppose he begins giving you directions and he really does want to help you. He's sincere. He wants to make sure that you get to the right place, but he's mistaken. He thinks he knows where you're going, but he doesn't exactly know. And so even though he was sincere in his attempt to help you get to the right place, it doesn't matter because his directions are incorrect, and so you end up in the wrong place anyway. In either scenario, you end up in the wrong place, either because the person giving you the directions did not have character, was corrupt, or had good character but was mistaken. 
Well, if we were reading the Bible, if we were reading the instructions left for us, if the people who wrote these books had moral flaws, if, if there were issues at play there, then we would have to wonder, are we certain that this book is right? Or if we say, no, 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 we know that they were godly people, but perhaps they were mistaken, perhaps they misinterpreted something that was said to them. What if we end up in the wrong place? We don't have to worry about that. Because the men who wrote this book were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so at any point along the way, if they were just about to make a mistake, then the Holy Spirit would say, no, that's not exactly what I want you to write. Here's how I want you to write this. Here's how I want you to convey that meaning. And so because God's word it was, was written by men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit, we know that it is true. We know that it is true. Second, we know that God's word is unfailing which means that it is true in every circumstance. We won't ever find an area in our lives or other people's lives where we say, well, I know that this is what the Bible teaches, but had God known what she said about her, he would give an excuse to let her hold on to bitterness and resentment. If God only understood how expensive it was to, to buy these particular items, he would not have called me to be generous in, in, uh, with my financial resources. We won't ever find an exception because as these men were putting down what God revealed to them, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so there aren't these isolated experiences where we say, well, this is an exception to what God teaches us. Because God's word is, is unfailing, it is true in every circumstance. I have a college, or I had a college professor who during his college, his own college days, he was somewhat of a free spirit, and so he loaded up. He, he went on a boat across the Atlantic Ocean and was going to hitchhike across Europe all summer long. And so as he was hitchhiking across Europe, he would get to various places. He would spend the night, you know, wherever he could find a place, unroll his little sleeping bag or, or someone who was willing to take a stranger into their home. And I forget what specific country where he was, but he said he was standing on the road hitchhiking and he was doing what we do in America. He was like... What he did not know was that in that country, this is an obscene gesture. One similar to the way that you may, you know, make at the officials at Union football games on Friday night. And so as he was standing there, he was, he was like this, and people were driving by blowing them. Beep, beep, oh yeah. And he was, that's right, that's right, that's what I want, I want to go this way. Beep, beep. Because that nonverbal gesture isn't the same everywhere. It, it, it's not an unfailing universe sign it's something that that means different in different places and let me give you another example you help me fill in this rule I before E or as pronounced as way right is that not right it's I before E except after C but if you have words like way or, or others like that, and then that rule doesn't apply. But even in that rule, I, after, uh, I before E except after C, there still are exceptions to that rule. There, there are things that you just have to know and say, this, this really doesn't apply here, and so you have to spell something differently. 
And so when we are thinking about God's word, we don't have to wonder whether or not we're going to stumble upon some circumstance where we say, well, this really doesn't apply to you. This, this isn't exactly right. I think that my uh, particular circumstance is an exception to this. Not at all. God's word is unfailing. It is true in every single circumstance. There's not a single area of our lives where we will be able to say, well, now, if God had only known my situation, if God had only known my particular circumstance, then he would allow me to do something different. God's word is true. God's word is unfailing. It is true in every single circumstance. And then also because these men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, God's word is complete. Everything that, that we need to know about God and how he wants us to live is contained in this book. There aren't any, there aren't any incompletions now. There are some things that aren't in the Bible that we might prefer to be there. For example, in the New Testament, we hardly know anything at all about Jesus from the age of 12 to the age of 30. The only description that we have of those 18 years of Jesus' life is that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man and that he lived in submission to his parents. That's all that we know as someone who regularly speaks to teenagers. I wish that there were some stories about Jesus from his teenage years so that we could say, let me show you what he did here. I mean, I wish that there were some stories where Jesus learned how to handle it when two girls got mad at each other but we don't have them. I wish that there were some stories about how Jesus would, would deal with a, a situation where he had to work late and missed time with his friends. I wish that there were some type of record that we had in the Bible of, of how Jesus handled when he lost a game or a sport. Now, of course, Jesus would play football, baseball, basketball, godly sports. He would not have played soccer, the devil's favorite sport. And so we, I wish that there were some things that we could say, but look at this, look at what, look at what happened here, but we don't. But everything that we need to know about God is contained in the Bible. Everything about how he wants us to live that is necessary is contained in the Bible. We don't have to say, well, God left us something incomplete and we don't know, we really don't know what we're supposed to do here. The Bible is complete because these men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Is anyone here absent-minded or, for, or forgetful? You run to the grocery store and you know that you have to get six items and you say them over and over and over as you are walking into the store. One, two, three, four, five, six. And then you get the five items and you say, what was that sixth one? And you start trying to figure out what was the, I know that there was one other thing. What did I need to get? Oh, and you forget it. You get in the car and you get home. That's what it was. We don't have to worry that is Peter, James, John, Paul. We don't have to worry that as they were writing, something important slipped their mind. And that after the Bible was published, they said, oh, there was something else that I needed to mention. God's word is complete because the Holy Spirit carried these men along. They did not have to rely on their own memories or their own abilities. The Holy Spirit carried them along so that everything necessary is included here. Did any of you, when you were in school or if you are a teacher, do you know the story, the short story, the lady and the tiger, or the lady or the tiger? Does anybody know that story? It's a, apparently very well known outside of Neshoba County. 
But the Lady or the Tiger is a short story that, that talks about a princess who is in love with a peasant. And they have to sneak around because the king doesn't want his daughter, his princess daughter, to be associated, certainly not to marry this low peasant. And so they, they sneak around and they are deeply in love with each other. But then the king discovers that his daughter is still in love with this peasant. And so he makes, he, uh, makes a way that they cannot be married. He, he uh, sentences him to a crime or he, or he accuses him of a crime. And then he puts this, he's going to put the peasant in this arena, sort of like the Roman Colosseum, and he's going to have a structure, and, and the structure will have two doors in it. And then the peasant will have to open one of the two doors. Behind one door is a tiger, a ferocious tiger that will not have been fed and would pounce upon the man, attack him, and kill him. But behind the other door will be a woman whom he can marry. And the king will say, this is how we will know whether or not he is, he is innocent of the crime. If the tiger comes out, then he was guilty. If the woman comes out, he was innocent. Now, some of you married people may say, hey, we need to reverse that. But that's exactly the way that the short story goes. And so the princess loves the peasant and she doesn't want to see him attacked and so she begins to investigate to find out which door is the tiger going to be behind but in her investigation she learns ah, oh, the woman that the king is going to put behind the door is a romantic rival Someone who has tried to wedge herself between the princess and the peasant. Someone who, who has been trying to flirt with him and get his attention. And so now she's faced with a crisis of belief. Do I, do I want to see him die or do I want to see him live all the rest of my, uh, all the rest of my life with this romantic rival, someone that, that I despise? And so she's weighing back and forth, which one do I want to do? But she does learn which door the tiger will be behind and which door the lady will be behind. And so as the peasant makes his way into the arena, he looks in the direction of the princess and she motions to one of the doors. And the short story ends, what came out, the lady or the tiger. And so then you have to debate. We debated it in eighth grade English. We debated what came out. Did, did she love him so much that she said, oh, I just can't, I can't bear to see him torn apart by a tiger. And so, and so I am willing to give him to my romantic rival. Or did she say, mm-mm, no way she's having him. It'll be better for, for anything other than watching them live in wedded bliss all of their lives. Which one, op which one came out of the door? Well, it's intentional. That, that short story is intentionally left as a cliffhanger, as something that, that people can debate and try to figure out based on what we know about human nature, what came out. But God's Word isn't that way. God's Word isn't something that leaves us with a cliffhanger that makes us scratch our heads and say, well, I wonder what God would, would want us to know here. If we need to know it, God has told us. He has revealed it to us. How many of you have seen the greatest movie ever made, It's a Wonderful Life. Okay, most of you have. There are godly people in the room. It's the greatest movie ever made, and I will fight you over it. 
For those of you who may be over Thanksgiving or Christmas who watched that movie, It's a Wonderful Life, you know it's a wonderful, heartwarming story that, that really has a uh, satisfying conclusion. But what if that movie ended with George Bailey going back to the bridge after he's seen all of the turmoil that would have happened had he never been born? What if he goes back to the bridge and he's standing there, Clarence, I want to live again. I want to live again. And then all of us, the ending credits rolled. Nearly as good of a movie because the ending that we need is not there. That isn't the case with God's word. It is complete. It is, it is whole in everything that God intends for us to know. The Holy Spirit carried these men along. They did not have to rely on their own memories, their own abilities to be able to say, here is, here is what I need to put in here. No, these people were carried along by the Holy Spirit, and God's word is unfailing. It is permanent. It is true and, and complete in all that it intends to teach. Well, let me close with the application. If we know that this book is unique, it is different from every other book, it is not an ordinary book, what are we to do about it? Some people choose to disregard God's word. There are people in our society, there are people right in Neshoba County who may look at this book, but they do not at all treat it as a unique book, as something that is ordinary. They say, well, I know that's what the Bible says, but I choose not to live that way, I choose not to believe it. Some people disregard God's word some people like to debate God's word they find the controversial places they they look at the issues that are hard to understand and, and really their only interest in the Bible is debating it trying to figure out well what about this what about this what about this and they they don't really internalize God's word some people disregard it some people debate it some people dishonor God's word and here's what I mean by that there are people who know that this is God's word there are people who in profession have surrendered themselves to Jesus Christ and they say, yes, I know that this book is the Bible, but they don't want to live by it. They claim the name of Jesus, but their lives dishonor God because of the disobedience to the word. But then there are some people who say, I am going to do God's word. If God's word teaches it, then I am going to do it. I'm going to live out God's plan for my life as best as I am able through the power that he gives us every single time that God's word is taught or read, God calls for a response. James chapter 1 tells us not to be merely hearers of the word, but to be doers of it, not merely it. That's the great commission. Jesus did not command us to go and make theologians. He said, I want you to go and make disciples, teaching them to do everything that I have commanded you. And so God, our lives is for us to obey and do God's word. Now, one of the ways that we do so is by surrendering ourselves to Jesus Christ. This book is the one that points us to Jesus who willingly died on a cross for our sins, was buried and then rose again on the third day. And that Jesus who paid the price for our sins welcomes whosoever will into his kingdom simply by those who repent of their sins and turn in faith to him. It could be that there are some people who are here today and you already do belong to Jesus, but there are some inconsistencies where your life doesn't match up with what God's uh, word teaches and you would like someone to pray with you and help you. Uh, in that area. In just a moment, our worship team's going to come and they're going to lead us in a closing song. 
after the service, I will be available to talk with you, to pray with you, to to in any way that I can, either with beginning a relationship with Jesus or in continuing one that is in faith. But before our worship team comes, we have a video of someone in our church family who has responded to God's word, and we want you to hear her story. Hi, my name is Inhabit Ezel, and I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, February the 3rd, on a Wednesday night. Ever since that happened, I've been so much more happier, and I can't stop smiling. And remember, Jesus loves you. 